Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Former Obama administration official Andy Slavitt was one of the few outside health experts regularly talking to the Trump White House during the pandemic's first year, bearing witness to what he calls missed opportunities, willful neglect, and indifference and denial from our president. As COVID-19 deaths skyrocketed, Slavitt began publicly documenting what he saw, and those observations formed the basis of his new book, Preventable. We'll talk to Slavitt about what could and should have been done to prevent such massive loss of life and what still needs to happen to contain the coronavirus. That's next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The American death toll from COVID-19 has surpassed 600,000 people. A staggering loss. Many lives could have been saved if the U.S. had responded better to the pandemic. And that's what Andy Slavitt is here to talk about. He was able to see firsthand, for a time, the failures at the Trump White House that doomed the nation's coronavirus response, given his contacts in government from his time as an Obama administration official. And he's seen the effects of the virus on his own family, sharing last month that his son has been dealing with long-haul COVID symptoms. Andy Slavitt's new book is Preventable. Welcome to Forum. It's great to be here. Thank you. How is your son doing, if you don't mind my asking? Well, I appreciate you asking. You know, I think he would say that um, in the scheme of things, what he has is very manageable, but it's still puzzling. He came to to show us the other night that his hands were ice cold uh, and purple. And um, that's a strange thing to see. Um, And he's complaining from from some other symptoms and they kind of come and go. Uh, So, you know, as a young person who's, you know, 19, it's troubling for parents, you know, your go-to move with kids is it's going to be all right. Or to be able to tell him that it's going to get better. And that's the hard thing for us as parents is we just don't know um, how long this will last. Yeah, that's so true. Why did you want to share publicly that your son is battling long COVID? Well, it was interesting because I was giving a press conference uh, where we were talking about young people who largely feel, many who feel removed from the threat of COVID-19. And I asked him, I said, Zach, um, I know you're private about this. How how do you feel about me discussing your situation? And I expect him to say, no, dad, I really prefer you didn't. And he said, do you think it would help people? And I said, yes, I think it might help people. But I also would tell you it's not your burden to Mm. put yourself at the center of this. And so you absolutely don't need to do this. And then um, he thought about it. And I was convinced he'd spent a lot of time thinking about it. He said, Dad, I want to do this. I want you to do this. Um, 
and not because he wanted intention. I think he feels a little bit funny about the attention, but because I think he, he recognizes that people in his age group aren't taking this seriously enough. I see. You mean they're not taking it seriously enough in the way that they're behaving or in their vaccination rates, things yeah, like that? Yeah, and it, well, probably both. But but in terms of feeling the need to get vaccinated, which is, I think, at the present moment, the, the most important thing a young person could do. And look, and then they can go live their lives and they don't need to be um, living so carefully. They can be um, at college or post-college and go to bars, et cetera. And that will... Um, but, but it requires them getting vaccinated, and that needs to be just as important. Huh. I, I know you just stepped down as senior advisor to President Biden's COVID response team. Several months ago, the Biden administration announced that its goal was to at least partially vaccinate, meaning at least one vaccine dose if it was a two-dose vaccine, 70% of Americans by the 4th of July. It's appearing now that we won't meet that target. It sounds like young people are a key group to try to target to get there. Um, I'm wondering who else? Well, you're exactly right. People over 40, 75% have had their first dose. People under 40, um, it's under 50%. And they should get down to 18 to 30 year olds. Um, it, it's, it's even lower. And look, I think we'll come very close. And I think the president's goal really put us in a situation where we're able to be close to hitting that target um, and we'll keep going. But I think the bigger picture issue is not whether we're at 68 or 70, but it's that some parts of the country will be, um, will be at 80 to 90, and some will be at 40 to 50. And those places that are 40 to 50 um, will, uh, will have, that's where we're going to be at, at most serious risk. Right. It's so interesting you bring that up because... I mean, California, it's happening within the state of California. This week, the state ended nearly all health restrictions on businesses and on, on gatherings and things like that. But, uh, you know, in Pasadena, for example, we're looking at like more than 70% of people 12 or older fully vaccinated. And then in other parts of California, rural parts, for example, like in Tehama County, only 30% of residents have gotten one shot. And I'm wondering what that means in terms of an overall ability for us to contain this pandemic and how concerning that is to you. Well, look, I think the first thing is people ought to, um, do a little bit of celebrating um, and, and, and we've been through a very hard thing. And so, um, the, the, I, you know, I know we're just sort of in this mind frame of being vigilant, but um, we've been through a long, hard, difficult thing. And I hope people really appreciate and take advantage of getting their life back. Um, if you've been vaccinated, there's very, very little to worry about. And if you've been vaccinated, this falls now into the category as it does for the country of a very manageable challenge, as opposed to um, some out of control thing that overwhelmed us. Uh, we have plenty of challenges in our life, so this so this won't disappear. So what we you know we 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 can we can deal with that. But um, if you're living in a community, and it's mostly in the southeast and in some rural areas, where there are very um, frequent. Um, 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 I should say very, very, um, a lot of people who are not vaccinated because people tend to cluster whether they're vaccinated or not in the same regions. Then when things like the Delta variant come, people are going to be at real risk. 
Can you talk about the Delta variant? Um, it's making headlines right now, and I know you've called it COVID on steroids because it's so infectious. What do you think we need to understand about this strain and how effective vaccines are against it? Well, I think, I think we should understand that if we were going to walk into a room before and it would take us 10 minutes to get exposed uh, to, to, the, to the virus, it now may take four minutes or five minutes. Um, so we should think about it in those kinds of concrete terms. Um, it's a more contagious strain. Um, having said that, um, you know, not, while nothing is perfect, this vaccine is as close to perfect as, as almost any vaccine we've ever seen on anything, and including on these variants. But it's very important that people get two doses uh, if you're taking mm -hmm. the Pfizer or Moderna shot, because the added protection from the second dose is actually very important for the Delta variant. And so if you've only gotten one dose and you've sort of put off the other because you think, well, this is enough, it's no big deal, go ahead and get the second dose. And then I think you should have very little to worry about for now. Huh, that's that's good to know. I, I did recall hearing that actually, that just one dose right now doesn't appear to be terribly effective. Um, one of the other things that I remember hearing you say in one of your podcasts was related to not mistaking progress that we've made on vaccinations, progress that we've made on death rates, things like that for victory. Could you explain what you meant by that? Um, I'm not sure I understand the, the question. The question is what um, the progress we need to make in order to declare victory? Yeah, like what does that look like for you and the concern that you have that people mistake progress for victory? Oh, I see. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Thanks no, and I think I made that statement in uh, a couple of months ago, which is why I was confused, um, because we were seeing cases drop um, and therefore um, people, I think, were prematurely, before the CDC changed their guidance, deciding not to wear masks and to congregate in bars. Uh. And people who had not yet been vaccinated, it was very easy for them to say, well, I was gonna get vaccinated, but I don't know why I need to any longer because cases are dropping. And in a sense, um, not recognizing the fact that it was because of the, these vaccinations that, that's, that we were seeing these drops. So we were at a point in time when, you know, I had committed to the public from the White House that I was going to be very truthful, call it like I saw it and give people the information they needed. And at that particular point in time, um, it was important to let people know that we were on our way, but not there yet. We are substantially further than, than we were then. And I, I, while I wouldn't say I'd use the word victory, I would say we are in a spot um, that I hoped we would be in. I think the reason that I ask is because with California reopening, there have been a lot of sort of questions, things like, is the pandemic over for you? What does over look like? And as a result of, of this sort of milestone that the state has achieved to some extent, with also an understanding of how much work is left to be done. And I guess one of the things that I really think about is what do you think over means? Like, what does it look like or the end of the pandemic means? I, I, I think, is it sort of something like the flu, like something that we manage on an annual basis after this? Yeah, look, I think I think it put it in the category of of manageable challenges of which we have many in this country, and uh, you know it will be maybe this year a top in the U.S. a top ten um, killer. So it's not something to ignore. 
Um, it's not something to, to turn a blind eye to, but it won't be gri gripping our lives. It won't be dictating our every move. I mean, the thing we've lived with for the past year is because it spreads asymptomatically, we weren't in a position to know who had COVID-19 and who didn't. And that would ca cause us to set policies to be extra careful and assume that if you ran into someone on the street, that they might have COVID-19 and that you might get infected. You can remove those assumptions now if you've been vaccinated. So it's a very different mindset. But psychologically, it's not necessarily an easy adjustment just because the facts say it's so. If you, people who study the, the, flu, the influenza of uh, 1919 in this country, there was a six month to 12 month period where people uh, well after things were safe had a very difficult time um, understanding it because this whole thing was invisible. It was invisible when it came. It's invisible when it left. It's not like a hurricane or an earthquake where you can see the damage and see the work on putting things back together and have visual clues that things are back to normal. You know, everything about this is something that just defies what you see with your own eyes. Is a really good point. I do think that it will leave scar too, as um, we are hearing people say, especially around this time when some are seeing this week in California as, you know, the beginning of the end. We're talking with Andy Slavitt, former senior advisor to the White House pandemic response team under President Biden, and his new book is Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics and selfishness doom the U.S. coronavirus response. We're talking about that response, especially digging into the early uh, year of it last year after the break. Uh, and you, our listeners, are invited to join this conversation with your reaction to, reactions to what you're hearing. Questions for Andy Slavitt at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Andy Slavitt says the COVID pandemic ranks as one of the greatest disasters of our time. And as U.S. COVID deaths surpass 600,000, we're talking to him about where we are right now in the pandemic and also talking to him about what could and should have been done to prevent such massive loss of life. Andy Slavitt's new book is called Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics and selfishness doom the U.S. coronavirus response. And Andy Slavitt, I want to talk to you about that now. So you were most recently a senior COVID advisor to President Biden. But what some people might not realize is that you were also in the pandemic's first year in contact with people in the Trump administration trying to offer advice and assistance to the likes of Jared Kushner and Deborah Birx. And in that capacity, you were also able to witness the failure of what you've called our first line of defense. Can you talk about what that experience was like, how you were first trying to get um, get them to, to engage with you about how they were responding to this? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, let's, let's all acknowledge that we could be, even if we're forgiving, we would say a pandemic is a tough thing to manage. Um, and so 
you know, making tactical errors um, um, is understandable. So long as you believe that your leaders are actually working to try in your best interest and, and expressing an, an enough degree of empathy. Um, and it was clear to me early on that that wasn't happening. And so I called Jared Kushner and began a dialogue with him. Um, it was unusual in that I'm a Democrat, but, uh, but I also have had uh, been inside the government, led major disaster responses before, offered my help, and had a running dialogue with him and many others inside the administration, all of which I reported out pretty verbatim uh, in, the, in, the, in the book. And what, what I would tell you is that there were three things which, uh, which I would probably call the three deadly sins of the way this was managed um, that are just over and above simple mismanagement or simply getting things wrong, which again, I think we all ought to be a little bit forgiving if someone's putting in the effort but doesn't get every decision right. I think that's to be expected. But above that, the president did three things which I think um, he needs to be kept to account for. And I'm, the book kind of lays those three things out. And describe those three things. Sure. Well, so the first is, is just very simply the denial of the virus and the denial of the seriousness of the viral. I mean, if something doesn't uh, paint the picture that the president wants, his, his go-to move has been to say, um, that's not the reality. And he thought he could color reality because it's worked for him in the past. And that left us unable to respond. If he would have simply said, we have a problem, then that would have been a very different story. But we now know, based in part on, John, on Bob Woodward's reporting, that in January, he knew for certainty that Americans were going to be dying by the hundreds and by the thousands. And he went to bed every night, not saying a word. And in my book, I have briefings uh, where he's briefed and he's told this, and he just doesn't like it. And I would argue that if it weren't for the NBA um, shutting down, which caused the stock market to shut down, um, it's unclear whether the president ever would have, what would have ever caused the president to acknowledge things. So that was the first sin. The second is the overwhelming quashing of dissenting opinions. Um, you know, it began by, by trying to remove Nancy Messonnier when she warned the public. But in the book, there are some other details that haven't been known before. So at one point, Alex Azar um, wanted to go on Fox and Friends. He's the health and, he was the Health and Human Services Secretary right. and say um, that things were fine, which they weren't but could change rapidly. When the White House saw that note, they pulled him from Fox and Friends and then abolished him from doing media for 45 days. And so you can imagine, we have a public health crisis and the Department of Health and Human Services is not allowed to talk to the press or the public because the White House doesn't like that story. And, and it, went, it goes all the way through with the CDC and the FDA, but anytime someone had a narrative which was different from this is no big deal and it's not our fault and it's overblown, um, that voice was quashed. And then the third deadly sin, which is almost for extra credit, is Trump decided to turn the public health, it, a public health crisis into a, um, a tribal identity crisis. It wasn't enough. As soon as he heard that his, his supporters didn't want to wear masks and were rebelling. Um, he played to the crowd. And the, the idea of a populist leader looking for favor at a time when tough decisions need to be made 
is a real challenge and is not a good combination. We're talking about the uh, early days of the federal response to the pandemic and the flaws that uh, Andy Slavitt witnessed. Andy Slavitt's new book is Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics, and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation with your questions or comments about that early federal response. You can also tell us what your questions are about where we are at today and and. How are you feeling about the progress made so far? The number 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. While you talk about Alex Azar trying to say to the public that things could change at any moment. And that, just that little thing was something that caused him to be on, basically banned from media for 45 days. You did seem to have, you know, quite a frustration over the way Azar handled things, including the way that, uh, you know, he really went after Messonnier uh, when she tried to say that the pandemic was going to happen or when she did say that and that it was not a question of whether, but when, and that people needed to be prepared for significant disruption. Can you give a, just a couple more examples about, you know, why uh, Azar in particular, you felt like really abdicated to some degree, uh, his his role in handling this as the head of Health and Human Services. Well, very few people are either all good or, or all bad. Um, but um, the people who chose to continue to serve in the administration under President Trump had essentially um, decided that they were going to essentially stick with that script. And when the president wanted there to be um, a, um, wanted the FDA commissioner to get admonished, um, he, he, Alex Azar in a sense became his hitman. And some of this, as the book lays out, was that he was banished from his own task force. You know, he started a task force to respond to the, to the crisis. And by, by Alex Azar's account, he's an expert at pandemic response. Um, and so he felt quite confident in doing that. But what he did was he played politics. He failed to invite the FDA or CMS into the into those. And those were two organizations that reported to him where he didn't get along with the leaders, but they had critical roles to play. And as a result, there were lots and lots of errors. So when Mike Pence came along to take over the task force, Alex Azar was kicked out. And everybody who was working on this who worked for Azar was now working effectively for Trump and Azar was in, was in the dark. And so he spent much of what's documented in the book. He spent much of the year trying to win back favor with president Trump. And a lot of the ways he did that was by being um, his hitman for him. Hmm. The other thing that you write a lot about is the role of Deborah Burks, actually. I mean, our memories, Andy Slavitt, probably some of the most harmful are also some of the most ridiculous. I mean, rem remembering Trump about, you know, the bleach cure that he suggested, the, the hydroxychloroquine exaggerations and, and the bogus science around that, the claims that only old people got COVID, that it would disappear, all of that, the racist virus references. There were so many things where, you know, Deborah Burks and Tony Fauci as well, but Deborah Burks was standing there shuffling uncomfortably. And I think there are a lot of questions which I, you could give insight to in terms of why couldn't more competent officials do anything um, to to try to make Trump understand what was going on. There was so much at stake. Well, people who didn't like 
Deborah Burks hadn't yet had a chance to meet Scott Atlas. Um, because once Scott Atlas replaced Deborah Burks, um, we realized that at the very least, Deborah Burks was a competent person trained in infectious diseases who wanted to save lives and was well-meaning. And Scott Atlas was none of those things. Um, so, but, you know, you, the, I think your point is exactly right. It's just here she sat inside an administration where if you were going to make the decision to continue to work for President Trump, um, you were either going to have to march to his playbook or get banished. And she tried it both ways. She first tried to work with his playbook and convince him. She got overly optimistic. I think she got a little bit wowed by the proximity to power. Um, and I think she was, um, but in many respects, I think she believed that the president would let her do her job. Um, when she found out that that wasn't the case, and by the way, it only took one day for her to find that out. It was the day after she, in, in March, when she said, here's our plan to get the country to back up, go back up, and again, here's the standards. And the president stood up the next day and sent out tweets, which said, liberate Minnesota, liberate Michigan, when he saw his, uh, when he saw his supporters in those states. Um, then it was really over. And I actually, that's a chapter called Trump Ate the Marshmallow. Which, which of course refers to that famous laboratory experiment that most of the listeners remember. And from there, she basically got in a car and traveled around the country, meeting with governors and talking to them about the crisis that they faced. And I think it was something of a tour where she was trying to, uh, the best she could to account for some of the mistakes that she made and some of the positions she put herself in. Huh. But by the end of the book, she was in no illusion. She had no illusions. And in kind of the seminal moment in the book, um, we talked about the face to we were face to face talking about the upcoming presidential election that was only a week away. You know, you write that in the early months of the pandemic, you too were not that you were trying to walk with the administration, but you were trying not to apportion blame either in public or really <laughs> as much as you could in private. But instead, you were trying to keep lines of communication open so that you could influence to some extent how the administration managed the pandemic or answer any calls if they if they needed you. What did all that change for you? Hmm. Oh, such a great question. Um, you know, I, 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 I make no bones about the fact that I was not a fan of, of President Trump. I didn't, I didn't and don't trust him. Uh, and think he has all the wrong attributes to lead us in a crisis like this. But um, it was my view that if we had half the country who was taking public health measures seriously and the other half that was not, we were destined to fail. And I think I probably had a little naivete and optimism that something like this could rally the country to unify. Um, and so it, I, I made a point at a very specific time of saying publicly that I was not going, that I was going to be offering my support to the administration that we all needed to pull together. But I told Jared Kushner and others in the White House that I would continue to hold the president publicly accountable when he did things that were harmful to the country. And that was the conditions under which we would continue to work and also that none of the things that we did together would be secret. Those were the only ways I could work with the White House. And that was, that was fine. Um, but what really changed for me was two things. One was when Bob Woodward's book came out, which showed that Trump, that Trump wasn't just incompetent and avoiding, but that Trump actually knew. And, and it's the equivalent of knowing that the Pearl Harbor is about to get bombed and not doing anything about it, just letting it happen because he knew 
that this was attacking our country and he did nothing about it. And I no longer could tell myself that he was operating in anything close to good faith. And the second thing was the upcoming election. I felt that the only way out of this pandemic was to replace the president. And so I made a very specific decision to essentially start bringing in the accountability more publicly for what I think was um, a tremendous amount of loss of life. I still continued to work with the White House, interestingly enough, um, because they still needed me for some things, but I was very publicly um, uh, working hard to make sure that he wasn't reelected at that point. We're talking with Andy Slavitt, who was acting head of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under President Obama and former senior advisor to the White House pandemic response team under President Biden. And you, our listeners, are with us. Let me go to caller Janet in San Francisco. Hi, Janet. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, My question is, um, I think, you know, most of the public knew was very aware of the denial and the incompetence of this uh, prior administration in handling uh, the pandemic. And we had to sit by helplessly and watch and worry as people got sick and died. And my own personal opinion is that this administration is guilty of murder because of their, um, their actions. But that aside, two things. Why... I understand that you wanted to try to stay involved and influence them as much as you can, but why weren't the people that were in the position to inform the public, either through leaks or public comments, um, more out, you know, uh, widespread public comments? Why didn't people do that? More people do that. All the CDC and all the people that knew exactly, the, you know, how this was being covered up. Why didn't more people leak or speak out? And what are we doing to prevent this very same thing from happening again, given that Trump could very well wind up in the White House again? Janet, thanks. Andy Slavitt. That's a great question. And, and I think, you know, there, there are some, some um, representative people in the book, uh, Peter Marks, um, Tony Fauci, I think, and others who I think were doing uh, what they could. The book is dedicated to career civil servants um, who because unlike the, the political people that Trump brought with him, um, these were people of the CDC and the FDA that really did want to, to, to do well. And um, what happened is what sometimes happens with President Trump is when Nancy Messonnier had a press conference where she basically said, look, Americans need to protect themselves. Um, it was the president badmouthed her and his, and his supporters started and on the death threats and on everything else. And it really intimidated um, everybody. And so some people left, some people tried to fight and work from the inside. Um, But this sort of diminishment of scientists and expertise and this intimidation and this bullying um, was was a really dangerous mix. And so, you know, I think, by the way, and I don't think this is a partisan cause. I think if there was a Mitt Romney presidency or a George W. Bush presidency, um, or John Kasich presidency, we would have seen a very different type of response. We would have seen a very competent type of response. Um, This was, I think, um, because we had a populist president who was unwilling to do anything um, that required any amount of investment or hard work or take any amount of accountability. And because he was able to intimidate and willing to intimidate 
any of the career civil servants that worked under him, just as he did with the FBI and just as he's done with, you know, did he did throughout his term. You're making me remember, I think it was a tweet that you were talking about how Trump's defenders say it wouldn't have been any different under Obama, but you say it would have been different under anyone but a madman. This listener tweets, we were doomed from day one because of the incompetent leaders in charge and the cowboy individualistic character of our country. This listener writes, how do you think the impending election affected the federal response? What if the pandemic had happened in 2017 or 2018? Boy, that's that's a great point. And I, I, and I obviously have some firsthand knowledge because on January 20th, um, I went into the White House um, to try to, to turn the tables. And... Um, we, what I saw, and I think the most important decision that President Biden made um, that de- made him a departure was to operate with full accountability. There were going to be no blaming of governors. There was going to be no blaming of anybody if we weren't successful. It was going to be fully accountable for delivering um, on the vaccinations as quickly as possible and as successfully as possible. And that's, to me, the only way to operate successfully, particularly in a crisis. If you try to operate where your entire goal is to cast blame, you're just not going to get it done. More with Andy Slavitt after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Andy Slavitt about what he knows about the deeply flawed federal response to the pandemic, especially in the earliest months. Andy Slavitt is former senior advisor to the White House pandemic response team under President Biden. His new book is Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. You, our listeners, are sharing your questions or comments about the early federal response and also curious what progress today means to you, how close you feel like we are to containing this and what questions remain for you. Very quickly, before I get to some more calls, Andy Slavitt, I, I was struck with, while you do talk about how much of the blame lands at the feet of President Trump and his administration, you also, as you catalog those, explain that there were other failures at work as well that you called the second line of defense. Can you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, I look, I think maybe this is even more important than, than, than looking at what went wrong with the, the leadership because there's an element of just who we've become as a country that I think is worth examining. Um, what do I mean by that? Um, we were plagued and we've been plagued in this country for a long time by gross inequality based upon race and based upon income and job type. Well, the, the, this, um, the burden of the pandemic fell disproportionately on people of color and people who work hourly jobs and were called essential workers. And in some places, 70% of the public was considered an essential worker. So there's a chapter in the book called the room service pandemic, which is that there were a lot of people that in a very guilty pleasure kind of way, were kind of doing okay during the pandemic and some even more than okay. And some people got quite wealthy 
during the pandemic. But for a lot of people who have access to Zoom and big homes where they can socially distance and they have Netflix and other kinds of, and Amazon deliveries, um, their life was very different than the people who were actually making those deliveries happen because there were people, you know, in the Central Valley growing crops and delivering to warehouses and delivering to stores and working in stores. And um, so, uh, and there are other factors, kind of how do we view expertise in this country and what caused us to be so distrustful and dismissive of experts. And in a situation where what, you're look, what, what, what you see with your own eyes in a pandemic isn't what's really happening because you can't see asymptomatic spread. If you don't trust science, um, it's gonna be very difficult so what, what caused that to happen? Our healthcare system, which on a good day um, leaves many people out and struggling and frustrated. People were losing health insurance as they lost their jobs in the midst of a pandemic. So there's all of these other things that I think are even more important to look at necessarily than the political failures because they're conversations that you know we need to be having with one another about how to make this country um, better, fairer, and able to support the people who live here to get through crisis like this. Well, let me go to caller Lori. And again, if you want to join us, 866-733-6786 is the number. Lori, thanks for waiting. Hi, Andy. I've been appreciating your Twitter account for months. I had a COVID episode March 18th last year, and I have been dealing with long COVID. Uh, started about a, a few weeks after that. So it's going on 14 months now i greatly empathize about your son also what you mentioned about having um it's called pernio um from hypothermia i have the same thing on my right hand uh and by the way my i see the chief of dermatology at kaiser and she recommended cbd oil which has cleared up um the situation on my hands you might want to try it with your son um, but nevertheless, what I'm concerned about is how many people are asymptomatically transmitting the Delta variant, all the other uh, different types of COVID-19 that we're seeing now and that we're going to be seeing in the months ahead, and that their testing has gone down 60%. Um, some people like me are immunocompromised and cannot even have vaccines. So I wish I could. I think vaccines are great, but there's thousands of us who are dealing with long COVID, cannot be vaccinated, and very concerned about um, so many people getting rid of masks. And Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. also with the news about aerosol transmission, which had the WHO and the CDC within 48 hours of each other completely revising their COVID transmission websites. Uh, it's not a matter of six feet of social distance that I believe Andy was a dangerous myth propagated by Trump's White House. I'd love your comments about that. But well, yeah. how are we going to manage? How are we going to manage with so many thousands, millions of people with long COVID who are not, who were never tested in the early months, and? Um, and are suffering with this now, even people who had asymptomatic COVID. Okay, well, Lori, let me give Andy Slavit a, a chance to, to weigh in on any insights you might have about Lori, what Lori is talking about. Lori, first of all, um, thank, 
thank you for sharing your story, your personal story. And uh, I'm so sorry for what you've been going through. Uh, I think your story needs to continue to get told. Um, and, and here's a couple of things I would, would say. So, so first of all, um, one hope on the horizon for people who are immunocompromised is, uh, is a antiviral. And there's great research going into antivirals now. And uh, I think it's an important game changer. And I hope we keep the attention focused on getting these antivirals out because for people who can't take a vaccine, um, that, that will be uh, helpful and important to them. You know, secondly, um, this sort of notion of ring vaccination, making sure that everybody in your life that you spend time with is vaccinated is, is, is the other important strategy. Um, uh, so um, I think the, and then finally, you know, long COVID is something that um, I think we just announced before I left the White House that we were putting some significant funding inside the National Institutes of Health towards. And I think you're going to see long COVID centers developing as, as they are here all over the country. Um, and that means we're gonna need to, uh, there's a combination of research and data and patient care that will build uh, so some knowledge around. But I think it begins with sort of acknowledging um, you and seeing you and seeing what's what's happening and seeing what you're saying and making sure people are aware of it. So thank you for starting that. And Lori, thanks for the call. This listener writes, I know several adults choosing not to get vaccinated because they just don't see the need or don't trust the government or say they fear long-term risks like infertility. It's very hard to convince people to look at the science. They respond with, I feel safer not getting vaccinated. It's very frustrating. In some ways, would you say that's the other group? We were talking about young people and targeting young people. What is an effective way to target others who, who have kind of been waiting to and seeing um, if not some of the other things this listener talked about. It's a really hard thing to do, but I think we have to try to respect people's process as much as possible. I mean, the vast majority of people who aren't vaccinated are not anti-vaccine. There's some that are, but it's a small minority um, because these are folks that have taken other of their vaccines. And so they have questions. And I think we need to, to try to make sure we're treating these questions respectfully and legitimately and encouraging people to go talk to their local physician to go talk to people that they trust, to observe people who have been vaccinated. And then when, when the FDA does final approval of Pfizer and Moderna, which will happen shortly, I think it's another opportunity to say, hey, you were waiting for the jury to come in. You wanted to wait. Now we've seen hundreds and hundreds of millions of people safely vaccinated. And the FDA has now taken all that data and said, this is a very safe and effective drug. Even though we know it is, that final stamp, I think we should used to try to get in front of people and help them help persuade them that indeed um, now's the time. And let me go to caller Jacqueline and Martinez. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi, Jacqueline. Are you there? Well, we'll try to reach you. Let me see if I can go next to Mary in San Francisco. Hi, Mary. Hi. Uh, can you hear me? I can. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Dr. Slavitt. My comment is, uh, I'd like to know if I, your opinion. The House and Senate want to establish a 9-11 commission to investigate the causes of our horrible disasters. And it seems to me it's quite obvious, and you're spelling it out. Um, 
do you think it's necessary and should we not put our efforts into establishing a protocol for the next one, which will surely happen? Mary, thanks. Andy Slavitt? So, yeah, so look, uh, I've, I've met with the people that are working on this commission and I think it is a good effort and I think it's worth supporting. Um, in my view, we can't have too much dialogue um, uh, well-informed, not political, but just dialogue about what happened, what we could do better, not just, again, from a standpoint of what did the president do right, do wrong, et cetera, um, but to the standpoint of um, how do we become better at this? Because if you look around the world at the countries that did best at this, it had nothing to do with wealth. It had nothing to do with geography, location near to China or international travel. It had to do with two things. One is how experienced were they in dealing with a public health crisis before? And two is how much, how egalitarian is the society? So societies with great wealth and great poverty, like Brazil, like the US, like Russia, did poorly. Societies with more equality um, and equanimity, um, like Denmark, like Japan, like Australia, like New Zealand, like even like Germany, um, which is somewhere in the middle, but closer, um, did much, much better. And those are things we should talk about. Well, let me thank Mary for the call. Martha tweets, can you address any updated info on the J&J vaccine against the Delta variant? The J&J vaccine has um, about a 60% effectiveness um, against the Delta, against the, the Delta variant, um, which, is, which is a little bit lower than the 88% uh, from Pfizer to Moderna. Still, if, if you're in the 40%, I think you can expect that you'd get a much milder case. Um, but it may be also reason for to look at, do you want a second J&J shot or do you want to mix and match it with a, uh, a Pfizer or Moderna shot? Um, one of my sons has the J&J shot and um, which is, I think offers a very good layer of protection, but we are going to recommend that he gets a second shot um, of either of, of, of any one of the three. Um, and I think that'll boost him um, high enough so that we'll have less to be concerned about with the variant. We're talking with Andy Slavitt, former senior advisor to the White House pandemic response team under President Biden. His new book is Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics and selfishness doom the U.S. coronavirus response, which is about the deeply flawed federal response in those early months. You, our listeners, are with us. 866-733-6786 is the number. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at KQED. Dot org. Why did you leave the Biden White House, by the way? It was, it was time. Um, and <laughs> it looks I, like someone's trying to reach you there. <laughs> yeah, and I apologize. This is um, what's happening is that the ACA verdict came down today. And so every news organization um, is trying to Skype me to get me to go on <laughs> TV to talk about the ACA verdict. And yes, I really apologize. I, I have my own questions about that, too. But, but yeah, why did you leave? Why did you leave first? No problem. <laughs> It was, it was the right time. Um, uh, you know, I came in and expressly saying that I was going to serve 130 days, um, which was the same amount of time that Ron, Ron um, a claim came in for, for Ebola. And, um, 
it was our view at the time that at the end of 130 days, we would either be in very good shape or we would be in very bad shape. Uh, but one way or the other, uh, um, we would, you know, and so I had a set of goals, the things that I wanted to have accomplished by the time we got there, um, by the time I got to the end of May. Um, when I got there, it appeared that it would take us to September to accomplish the things that I wanted, which was that we would have everybody with a chance to have a vaccine, that would we begin working on global vaccinations. And, you know, on my very last day, there were uh, 98% fewer cases. And there were, uh, and we had just announced that we were sending 500 million doses overseas. Um, so I think it felt like it was the right time. And the team in place is just terrific. So I have no doubts that, that they'll be able to be successful. Hmm. Well, let me ask you about the Supreme Court decision today. So it dismissed a challenge to the Affordable Care Act related to the uh, individual mandate. And I think the big question is, because this is sort of the third time that, uh, that there has been a challenge to it, if there's anything about the Supreme Court's behavior now that basically has really strengthened the position of the Affordable Care Act even more. Well, look, um, the, the, the ruling today, seven to two in favor of um, keeping the ACA um, is, should be welcome news for millions of Americans who have had for nearly the 10 years that this law has been in effect, had some sword hanging over their head that someone was gonna try to remove it. But you kind of have to ask yourself, they, they were not even found to have standing right. by the court. So why, why would somebody want to take away our health insurance and our pre-existing condition coverage if this was not even hurting them, if they didn't even have standing, they were not suffering because of it, they just wanted to do it anyway. And I have to ask that question and lay that at the grounds of President Trump um, and the House and Senate Republicans. Why do that? And it just, I think it adds to the legacy of how he managed the pandemic that he tried and now failed to take away our health insurance. Well, let me see if I can squeeze in one last call from Kathleen and Martinez. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, good morning. Thank you. I had a, I had a question concerned that early on in the pandemic, I think that providers, healthcare providers, could have been freed up by the health insurers and organizations such as health and health organizations could have been freed up so that every one of them started calling their panel of patients, giving them information about the CDC guidelines, how they could apply them in their families, and asking them how they were doing with it, and then also talking with them about their comorbidities. It would have been a counter voice to all of the other stuff that was coming out of the White House, which was only one voice. Mm. So when it came down to bleach and everything else, providers could have been having a great deal of input to their provider base, to their to their panel of, of patients. And, and that way, then, I think we wouldn't have that problem today. Many people would be vaccinated who are not vaccinated if they've been in touch with their providers. Andy Slavin, your thoughts? There's a great point. There, there's a chapter in the book called The Folly of the Free Market Pandemic, which talks about how when COVID hit and people stopped going to the doctor, all the premiums we pay to insurance companies, guess where they stayed? With the insurance companies, they had doubled their profits. Meanwhile, hospitals and physicians um, were com getting completely strapped and not getting any money and not getting enough support. And it says something both about the pandemic responses, as the caller points out, but also about, is that really how we want our healthcare system to work? Um, what we want is, the definition of resilience is that when we see tough times, 
the, the system responds and performs. And this was not resilience. This was the opposite of resilience. People who would lost their coverage, lost their insurance coverage when they lost their job. They couldn't get access to healthcare. Providers who were taking care of them were, were running out of money. Um, this is a sign, a big sign that we need to keep making progress and getting universal coverage in this country. Well, you know, we just have 30 seconds left, but I, I do, I was struck by how you called COVID a starter bug. Do you want to just leave us with what you hope people take away from your book? Yeah. So first of all, you know, I, I think the, the feedback I've been hearing, which is what I hope to hear, is that it is not a scary, traumatic way to relive the last year, which I know many people don't want to do. But but actually, um, uh, most people have told me that they began reading it and couldn't put it down through the evening and stayed up and finished it because uh, it gave an inside look um, at what was happening. It created some accountability, but it also asked some questions without trying to hit people over the head. For us uh, to grapple with in the future. Exactly. Andy Slavitt, thank you so much. The book is preventable. Thank you also to producer Susan Britton for producing the segment and to our listeners. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.